I know some of you will uh, do this regularly for work, but I don't get the train into London that often, but I did get to do that on Wednesday this week. And as I travelled uh, on the train into Fenchurch Street, I always try to catch a glimpse out of the side. Usually I want to sit on this side to catch the sea at Chalkwell, but I always try to catch a glimpse out of the other side of the train of a small, gorgeous little church that's in Bowers Gifford. Do you know the church I mean? You blink and you miss it, but it's almost right underneath the railway track. It's a gorgeous church, which presumably served the local agricultural community until life moved on and the A13 moved in and there's now not a house for some distance. But it's lovely inside too. I've had the privilege of being there for a christening. And whenever there's an old church, or I guess any church, and I know I'm not the only person in the room with this affliction, I guess I want to have a look inside. I see if the door is open. I go on tiptoes and look through the windows. I was in London on Wednesday for the launch of the Racial Justice Advocacy Forum, which was a a big ecumenical event, and uh, it was great to be there and hear about uh, the work of the forum. But whilst, and the meeting was in Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church, which is right at the top of Shaftesbury Avenue, which is a fantastic building in and of itself. But I was there about 20 minutes early because, you know, I'm always 20 minutes early. And uh, just across the road is St. Giles in the Fields, which is a lot bigger than the little church at Bowers Gifford. But I'd never been inside before. The door was open. I was the only person in there, and it was wonderful to spend those 20 minutes looking inside that church. Uh, for my birthday last year, Vicky bought me a tea towel with all, uh, it's it's the kind of life that we have in the church office. (laughs) I realised that I was about to tell an exciting tea towel story, and you're all looking at me going, it's a tea towel, how exciting does that get? But on this tea towel is a picture, of, of lots of pictures actually, of all of Wren's churches in the city of London, and I plan to spend a day walking around them at some point. Anyway, what I've found is that still, despite every reason not to, Many churches are determined to leave their doors open. You assume that it will be locked. And sometimes you can just turn the handle and go on in. I read a few years ago now about a church that had lost the key to their door about a hundred years before. And so whilst it doesn't make much sense for them to leave their door as wide open as they do, it's actually become one of the things that their community loves best about their church. When their new vicar was installed, she was supposed to be given the key to the door. That's one of the symbolic moments that happens when new vicars begin in their Anglican ministry, as per the prayer book service. But there was no key. So what would they do? So instead, the warden of their church presented the new vicar instead with a doorstop with a little brass plaque on it, which said, let the doors of this place open to all the people. Even when the doors are closed to keep the air conditioning in, or the cold out, their door is always unlocked. All it takes is a little tweak, and anyone can walk in, day or night, to say hello to God. But according to the 13th chapter of Luke's Gospel, which Chris has read for us this morning, the doors to the kingdom of God aren't quite like that. There's only one door, we're told, which is narrow, and it can most certainly be locked. No one wanders through it by accident. 
No one comes in for a casual look around. Getting through it is so hard, it says, that many will try and fail. They can shout through the door all they want. They can remind the Lord standing behind the door that they ate dinner with him. Doesn't he remember? That they heard him teaching in their streets. But none of that information will open the door for them. It's not enough that they know what he looks like. It's not enough that they can quote some of the things that he said. Because the sad fact is, as this section of Luke's Gospel points towards, their lives bear no evidence of a relationship with him. They know him, but he does not know them. The acquaintance was too slight to register in his memory, and we're told he tells them to go away. This is not the Lord, I dare to suggest, that many of us are looking for. We're counting on the come to me all you that are weary and heavy burdened, Lord. The one who takes little children in his lap. The one who prefers the company of sinners. We're counting on him to open the door for us to hold it open, to wedge his body in it if necessary so that we can squeeze through. But that is not who Luke gives us here. Instead he gives us the Lord who knows from his own painful experience that life does indeed come with limits. See, at this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And Luke tells us that, and we get the inference of what that means, that means time is limited. Jerusalem is where Jesus will die. Choices are limited now. Shallow acquaintances will not do. There is no time for dipping your toes in the water at the edge. Those who want to follow Jesus through the door cannot afford to stand back in the crowd and just listen to him. It's time for them to elbow their way to the front, to present themselves to him, to say, here I am, I'm here, put me to work for you and your kingdom. So there's a sense in which this reading in Luke is partly about limits, I think. As much as we chafe and fight against them, they can be great motivators. There's a book on my shelf that I haven't read yet. I've got a few of those. My capacity to buy them outstrips my capacity to read them. I know I'm not the only person here afflicted with that problem either. Um, Called 4,000 Weeks. Has anybody read this yet? It's newish? No? Okay. It's all about that's that's roughly how many weeks you get. So what are you going to do with them? Reminds me of the Mary Oliver poem. What are you going to do with your one chance at life? What are you going to make the most of it with? Anyway. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and there's a sense in which this is about limits. And the limits, when we know them, can motivate us, can't they? Anyone burnt the midnight oil with an assignment that's due by nine o'clock the next day, ever? I know I did. There was a point in my life where I wouldn't have started writing it till about ten o'clock that evening. That was almost the point, in the hope that the adrenaline would carry me through, but I quickly got pushed out of that. One of my favourite preachers tells the story of how their theological college tutor used to lock the doors when their class started. If you were late, you were out of luck. It only took a week for all of them to become very punctual. And apparently it made a difference to the dynamic of the class as well. When the tutor arrived, they were ready to begin. There was no lack of focus or drain of energy when other people arrive in dribs and drabs throughout the lecture, each one, they say, trying to be unobtrusive, although they might as well have been riding an elephant. 
There was none of that. And while some members of the class uh, accused the teacher of being rigid and unnecessarily strict, others praised the mutual respect that was fostered in this moment by clear boundaries. He took them seriously, they returned the favour. He had serious expectations of them and they proved keen to meet them. So sometimes the limits can have positive effects, which is fine as far as it goes, but, but I don't think that's all that this Luke 13 passage is about, trying hard and being on time. It's not a very inspiring gospel, is it? Instead, I think we need to consider in this moment who it is that Jesus is talking to. He was on his way to Jerusalem, and he is talking to, in these moments, people who were sure, sure as eggs are eggs, that God's door will always be open to them. They knew the rules, they played by the rules, they weren't sinners, they weren't tax collectors, and they fully expected to have reserved seats in the kingdom of God. A special section set aside at the banqueting table for the chosen people living in the promised land. When Jesus told them that it didn't work like that, that they would have to struggle like everyone else and that some of them might not make it, it was like a door being slammed shut in their face. That was one of the reasons why they killed him, because he took their security away. He undermined their faith in themselves by suggesting that God's idea about what is good and what is bad might be a bit different from theirs. So different that the people they thought were beneath them might well get into the kingdom ahead of them, and that scared them. If Jesus was right, then they were wrong about a whole lot of things. But all in all... Rather than rethink how they lived and what it meant to listen to these words of Jesus, it would be just simpler to get him out of the way. And so that is what they tried to do. They let their fear turn to anger, and Jesus had to go. Now, you will hear it said, perhaps, that this passage is about our Jewish sisters and brothers, and their relationship with the new message that Jesus comes to bring, but I'm not sure that's entirely true. Instead, I think this passage is about any and all of us who are certain that we know the mind of God and who are so sure that we are on God's side and are sure what God's priorities are that anyone who thinks anything different to us is wrong. It's about any and all of us who might find ourselves in our worst moments calculating our chances of getting into heaven by focusing on the sins of other people, as if we could free up more seats for ourselves by eliminating the competition that it's some kind of spiritualised hunger games. It's not how it works, Jesus says. We cannot assume that the door is open any more than we can assume that it's closed. There's nothing automatic about it, because the kingdom belongs to God, and no human brain power or cunning will figure everything about it out. But friends, here's the good news this morning. Nor, I think, can any amount of human despair seal it off. That's almost as big a problem as the other, you know? Along with the people who believe that it is their job to guard the door on God's behalf, these are the militant Twitter Christians, there are others who will not go anywhere near it. They don't even try the handle because they're so sure that it's locked. 
We will all be surprised, Jesus says. Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Well, that doesn't excuse any of us from trying the door. It's important that we try to go through, even though our trying in and of itself will not win us anything. It will simply teach us what we need to know. Some of us, who for whatever reason are used to walking through open doors, may find that this one requires more of us. We know that God is a God of justice, and that we are called, as part of our faith, to speak out and to work and challenge and change the evils of racism and misogyny and poverty and environmental destruction in this world. Our instinct and calling to love and to care must be combined with a willingness to stand against the powers of our age and speak the truths of God's kingdom, even if that comes at the cost of our financial security, our reputation and our plans for the future. Friends, God demands this of us, and nothing less will do. We hear this voice of God so clearly through the prophets, including Amos, who in chapter 5, and I'm reading from the Message Translation, brings us these words. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion project, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had enough, I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice. Oceans of it. I want fairness. Rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. It's Amos chapter 5. We must each use our privilege and influence to work for a better world where we live out our belief that God loves everybody and they are made in God's image. And that will sometimes mean that we need to change too. We need to change and move beyond our own prejudice and fear. To move beyond it into new ways of being and understanding. This is part of the Christian life. We work to make it a reality. We work to make a reality the prayer that we pray May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so friends, there are some of us who are used to walking through open doors. We may find instead that the kingdom of heaven demands more from us. But there are also those amongst us who have spent our lives peering through darkened windows on tiptoes. We may in fact find that the door has been open all along. I yearn for everyone to have the courage and the willingness to try the door, to risk seeing if it will open. Too many live thinking and believing that Jesus isn't for them, that they are beyond what we speak of when we talk of God's love for all the people. The shame can run so very deep. And sometimes the church has been complicit and has been the reason why we carry that shame. But friends, hear me this morning clearly. The voice that tells you that you are not enough, that you are too broken, too sinful, too messed up, that because you've done this or because you are that, that somehow the grace of God does not extend as far as you, I tell you that that is not the voice of God speaking into your life. God's love for you comes without condition. Jesus died for you. That's how loved you are. 
There is no sin and no struggle beyond the grace of God that would keep that door forever locked to you. God's grace is sufficient. And so we read in 1 Peter 2 that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That includes you. And so you see these few verses about a narrow door do in fact give us quite a lot to think about. There's always so much more to consider and take in and live out when we think about the love of God and the justice of God's kingdom. Some of us may need to hear one of those things more than the other. Many of us needing to hear both of those things at the same time. God is just and God is love. Being a disciple of Jesus, friends, is demanding. And being a disciple of Jesus is to be loved and known in ways that are too wonderful for words. God alone knows what we need today. So mostly this morning, more than anything else, I'm really glad that it's God in charge of the door and not me. That God, who knows us all by heart, has the capacity through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to meet us in our need. In the meantime, I think it's a good idea to keep the doors of the church open to all the people. I'd love it, I'd love it, if we had no choice because we lost all our keys to this building. The office might not like it. Our insurance company most definitely wouldn't like it. But I would love it if we lost our keys. Let us just get everyone inside and leave decisions about the other door, the narrow one, to God. I think we can trust God to sort it all out, don't you? I think we can trust God to love us better than we love and know ourselves. And for that, and for open doors in churches across the world. We say thanks be to God. Amen.